everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today on the show, on the Skype phone, I am talking to Chris Morgan, author of the new book, The Cosmic Galaxy of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for uh, having me. Now, Chris, this is hard to believe, but some people might not know what Mystery Science Theater is. How would you describe the show? Basically, in short, it was... The premise was involving uh, a, a person and a couple of robots stuck in space on a, a ship called the Shuttle of Love, put there by some mad scientist types who uh, had a plan for world domination that took the circuitous route of using um, uh, unfathomably uh, poorly made films to sort of try and drive the captives on the Shuttle of Love, um, you know, uh, mad and uh, but in order to um, fight this uh, sort of madness, they they make jokes and what have you. And basically, this is just a premise serves up to allow a few comedians, a couple of them in the guise of uh, robot puppet characters, to watch a bad movie, make a bunch of jokes and crack wise, and then they do some wraparound interstitial things, uh, host segments, as they were called, involving the, the people on the ship and the various mad scientists down on Earth to just give the slightest sense of um, sort of plot and forward momentum. But really, it was um, a movie riffing taken to the mainstream in what is still the um, most successful um, fashion or variation uh, ever done. Um, certainly, I feel like commercially, and also I personally feel critically. But others may disagree. But I mean, in terms of like the the cult status of Mr. Science Theater 2000, in terms of people making fun of movies, uh, I don't. I I don't think that anybody's ever uh, found more success. Sure. I mean, I think when you say you you probably could have just said the show where people make fun of movies, and I think people would have known what you're talking about, or anyone that uh, was gonna know what you were talking about would know what you were talking about, right? I suppose. I mean, that definitely. I mean, it's been um, a, a while since the show was on, and I, I don't know if it necessarily has a lot of lingering cultural cachet. I, they, it did show up in the Arrested Development episodes on Netflix, uh, and I guess I mean, Rift Tracks is around, and uh, you know, they've found some sort of cultural penetration. But if people think of a movie or, or a show where people are making fun of movies, it is Mr. Chazier three thousand. They think of. I just don't know how many people are thinking of shows where they make fun of movies. Yeah, I guess the other thing that you would know the show for, if you don't know, know it by name, uh, is the silhouettes at the bottom of the screen of the two robots and the human, you know, watching and pointing and uh, enjoying the movie. And that's the thing, I feel like people know that even if they don't know the show, just because it was around for so long. Because this show was on for, like, what, 11 years? Uh, including the uh, year on uh, local television in Minnesota. Uh, yeah, because they had 10 seasons spread across... Um, Comedy Central and uh, Sci-Fi Channel. They had the one year on KTMA in Minnesota, and they had the movie release, of course, too. So an episode of Mystery Science Theater is actually a movie. It's like people watching a movie, and in addition to the people watching the movie, you have the wraparound segment. So each episode was two hours on air. The show ran for 11 years. Um, we actually talked about it previously on this podcast. We had J. Elvis Weinstein on this podcast. Was um, In addition to writing for Freaks and Geeks and stuff, was the original voice of Tom Service. So there is a previous episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show about Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, but my point is just that there is a, a ton of it. There's 11 years of this show. 
uh, two-hour episodes each. Do you know how many episodes there are off the top of your head? Oh, it's a hundred in. I want. I feel like the first number is a one, and the last number is a two. It's the middle number. I'm having trouble recalling. It's like a Price is Right game. I think it's 182 or 183. Hang on a second. I can look this up, and hopefully I'm right. It's like one of those games where like you uh, you walk around, pick on the numbers on the uh, like the pad. It is 197, so I was way off. <laughs> so there's nearly 200 episodes of this show. They're about two hours each. Uh, what is your book about? Uh, my book is, um, well... It's a sort of overarching look. It's a small part history of Mr. Sanitary 3000, but it's not, that's not really the focal point. It is more sort of a critical sort of analysis of what the show did and sort of how the voice of the show morphed and the, the presentation of the show morphed. And also sort of a critical analysis of the film shown in specific episodes that like you gave the title of the film, but there's also a colon and then a subtitle, which is sort of the de rigueur thing for books these days. And that um, post-colon title is 12 classic episodes in the movies they lampoon because I focus on uh, specific episodes and the specific movies in the episodes, trying to sort of encapsulate all the different kind of movies that Mr. Science 3000 showed and all the different sort of um, and milestone episodes, characters leaving and coming and what have you. And uh, it's, so it's, a, it's part um, film criticism, part television criticism, part television history part um simpsons jokes just like my brain uh, my mine too it's like um it just like i can't like I, I mean i can in theory process sort of anything and discuss anything um not involving simpsons jokes simpsons reference it's just that it would take a concerted effort and this it how it flows naturally uh from me is that simpsons will you know infiltrate any sort of uh thing that i've been i'm ruminating on even if it is a uh, sort of different um pop culture entity that I've also spent a lot of time uh, with and have a, a deep affinity for. So when you say, just to keep it on Mystery Science Theater, because if we start going down the Simpsons, <laughs> right, we're going to do another Simpsons episode. Uh, if, when you say it's a critical analysis, what does that mean exactly? Well, I want to, like, no, I want to, like, really sort of break it down, because I, I got my bachelor's degree in film studies, and, uh, you know, that's not something you necessarily get a lot of practical use for in a lot of uh, aspects. It's something, I mean, I, I didn't even necessarily think of it. I have a practical aspect to it. I just want to have, watch films and what have you. But so it's taken a sort of film studies kind of approach. Like, uh, well, I say that and then I, I almost want to retract it immediately because I have spent a lot of time in film classes listening to people just spouting nonsense and sort of made up things and over warmed rhetoric that I think a lot of people think of when they think of sort of criticism, uh, which is sort of um, a, a boogeyman or to a lot of pe people, uh, a boogeyman or, or boogeyman. I'm sorry, it's another Simpsons reference I got. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, one of my favorites. But in short, um, like, so like, I, I, I like, I, I'm a huge pop culture advocate and pop culture aficionado and pop culture lover, but I don't, I like to think about it critically and like sort of delve deeply into it. So like I'm breaking these sort of like movies apart in terms of like film criticism, I'm breaking how Mistress Year 3000 approached it into down into sort of like a critical look at the kind of jokes, what, what worked sort of how the show evolved. Cause I mean, the show went through a lot of evolution for years. I mean, it had three different networks. It had different hosts, uh, different, a whole lot of different things going to it. So it's a uh, in-depth, 
analysis, breaking down sort of the minutia of Mr. Science Theater 1000 and uh, these movies, uh, including also in addition to the 12 episodes that are mentioned in the um, subtitle of the title, I also have a chapter devoted to the Mr. Science 3000 movie and to the shorts that were often paired with movies. Uh, so there's uh, those are also involved as well. So, you know, I feel like we've heard about this for The Simpsons. Um, we've heard about it for The Sopranos. We've talked about it a lot on this show in terms of Batman. Like this idea of like a serious, uh, critical pop culture analysis um, isn't new. And yet, even though Mystery Science Theater is this cult thing that is widely beloved, um, at least in certain corners of the internet, if not largely recognizable, you know, I gotta admit, even myself, I've never really thought about the show critically. It almost seems uh, immune to critical analysis in some ways, um, because, you know, like we said, once you get past all the artifice, the core of the show is just joking about bad movies. So how do you analyze something like that? Well, it's a little bit, in a sense, that way of like watching the Watchmen, and that like they are in in some aspects, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some aspects, they are criticizing the film, and you're criticizing the way they criticize the films. Um, but it's it's well, it's a it's a little more because I mean, like, you can think about their film criticism in terms of like like breaking down sort of any kind of sort of criticism. I mean, people talk about Roger Ebert, people talk about Paul and Kale and other folks and sort of the way they do things. And I mean, in their own way, that's partially what the show did. It's it's not as much, I feel like people think, I mean, Mr. Thousand don't really know what they think of people making fun of bad movies. That's really only actually a small aspect of the um, sort of the joking and riffing going on in the movies. A lot of sort of just using the movies as a jumping off point for pop culture references and um, other sort of uh, tangents and what have you. But so it's really, it's in like, for example, in the uh, chapters, one of the chapters is dedicated to the, uh, the movie Space Mutiny from uh, Mutiny from season Eight, yes, I believe it's season eight, the first season on um, on uh, Sci-Fi Channel. It would make sense because that season Sci-Fi Channel wanted only sort of sci-fi movies, right? right and it's a right. sci-fi kind of movie, and then they uh, start letting that go. But they make a lot of jokes in that movie about the love interest looking like so old and like how it's like sort of um, like ridiculous and funny and a source of humor that the love interest for you know David Ryder is this woman seemingly old enough to be his mother and I take him to task for that because I, I that's like sort of a, a bit of unfair sort of ageism in terms of like uh, you know saying that it is inherently a source of humor and a, that this woman the love interest of the film is uh, you know it's an absurd humorous notion that she could possibly be serving as a love interest in a film that that is an inherently sort of problematic thing and I take them to test for, for that sort of thing. That's, that's that's just one aspect of the thing and most of the time the show is not necessarily um, uh, that negative in terms of what they do and I don't, but that's just in terms of like, it's kind of hard to um, like articulate without sort of ex- giving an example. It's just sort of one kind of example of when I'm talking about what the uh, like what the the people in the theater are doing, sort of how I am approaching that and how I'm analyzing that and how I'm providing criticism of their uh, own criticism. Why did you write this book? What made you decide, you know, of anything you could be writing a book about? Why Mystery Science Theater? Uh, well, it's um, for to start off with like a starting point. Um, is that like sort of like I am you know a 
a creative type and like I like to have creative projects going on and I I don't like necessarily sort of having stagnation and um what I, I mean I do a fair, a fair amount of sort of writing professionally in a very sort of like um websites little articles and what have you that's that's what I do professionally is right uh, about pop culture and sports and uh, and what have you uh, but uh, I like to have sort of like big projects going on and a lot of times what I do is because I I uh I, uh, I live in Los Angeles, and I, I came out here because I want to sort of try and do um, like TV writing. That's sort of what I, I do, and I still aspire to do. Which means writing a lot of um, like you know spec scripts and pilots and what have you. But you write these things, and I, I really enjoy writing them. But there's not really a sort of market for them. Like people other than people like me aren't necessarily interested in like reading this sort of script. If somebody is not within that world, it's not like of interest to them. It's like when like you know former Simpsons writers Bill Clinton, Josh Weinstein put a failed pilot of theirs out on the Twitter, like I, I wrote read it immediately because I just I just love that sort of thing. But so basically, what happens is that like if anybody reads a script, it's um, like one like maybe sometime an agent will be like, sure, send me over your script, and then you'll email them periodically. Then they won't respond, and then when they do respond, they'll say, oh, I didn't get a chance. Can you send it over again? So then you're creating things in a vacuum, and there's a little bit of a dis a dissolution in that sort of sense of doing things. So I was like, well, I want to, you know, create something and do something that people will actually sort of read. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do that, the only thing really to do is to do a book. And a lot of people feel daunted by that before. I was like, oh yeah, sure. A book. Why not? I was like, I can do that. And then, uh, so I was like, well, if I'm going to do a book, I want to write about pop culture because that's what I love and that's what I'm interested in. And, I, and then I said, well, is there a, a market for books about pop culture uh, in terms of publishers? And when it turned out there is, I said, okay, well, I'll write a book. Now, what am I going to write a book about? Uh, so I didn't just, I had come up with the notion of writing a book before I even had any sort of topic or any sort of desire. And the first thing I thought of naturally was The Simpsons. But then I said, you know what? There's a lot of books about The Simpsons. People love The Simpsons, like, and there's been a, a bunch of books out on them. It's like that's good, you know, that's a market that's been saturated. I do have things to say about Simpsons, sure, but uh, I do. I, is that anything that people necessarily be interested in? The, why they would say, why another Simpsons book? Why this Simpsons book when there's a million Simpsons book out there? And then for whatever reason, the next thing that came to mind was Mr. Chester Thousand, which is another show I love. And then I was like, well, that's interesting. That's a, an interesting show. It's a unique show. It's a it's a cult favorite. People love that show. I love that show. And there's not probably as much said about it. And then so I because then I searched online, see are the books about Mr. Century Thousand, and there are a couple. And there's sort of like series of essays, series of academic essay books put together. And I was like, well, that was my initial thought. I was like, I can do a bunch of essays about Mr. Century Thousand. But then when I saw that that sort of thing exists. I said, well, can I say something original about Mr. Century Thousand? And that's when I came up with the idea of taking a series of episodes and focusing on those specific episodes instead of doing anything overarching because I could cover the same points uh, of like my overarching themes within the parameters of doing these specific episodes. And I got the idea is like, well, oh, I can take these specific episodes and go through the years to sort of cover the history of the show and the evolution of the show while focusing on episodes and being able to use sort of my film criticism skills. And so that is an exceedingly long-winded way of uh, letting people know why I decided to write this Mr. Chester 3000 book is basically so I had something to do and because I enjoy Mr. Chester 3000. But I'm bored. I just play video games. I feel like every time we are saying Mystery Science Theater 3000, we are getting shorter and shorter with it to the point where it's becoming like <laughs> Mystery Science Theater, you know, like just a run of syllables and we each know what each other is saying. Yeah. 
it's uh, I mean, just so far, this is too, clearly uh, going to be a podcast of uh, two uh, fast-talking people um, sort of exchanging like verbal volleys, and then it, it's going to maybe get uh, to some sort of comical point where we're talking like that Micro Machine guy, also known as the guy who played that teacher one time and Saved by the Bell. That would be my ideal scenario. Uh, I wish now I feel like I'm going slower because I, I feel pressure now. You know, like you can um, in most podcast listening apps, you can turn the speed up. I wonder if any have it where you can turn the speed down. Anyway, back to the book. So you mentioned the book. You know, you, you cover these overarching themes over charting these twelve episodes. What are the overarching themes? Like, what what was your takeaway uh, in doing this research? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, in terms of like the show, it's really interesting because it's really the little show that could in many ways because it started because basically um, there was a network in Minnesota, KTMA, which was a local UHF station, which is sort of a thing of a bygone era that if people understand what a UHF station is now, it's maybe because they stumbled upon the Weird Al Yankovic movie UHF. Also, a Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show about that. We had uh, the director of UHF on. Oh, it's fantastic. It's a, a very interesting movie, uh, uh, a fine movie that I would recommend to people, particularly sort of pop culture aficionados such as myself. Like pop culture that is about pop culture is my favorite kind of pop culture. I mean, some people find it to be sort of navel-gazing or what have you, but uh, I don't know. I've, I've just absorbed enough pop culture at this point that uh, it, it just it reflects back at me in a way that just is white in with my wavelength. But I was, anyways, this was like a low-rated network that was desperate for like um, content, and the guy who was sort of like running the content just knew Joel Hodgson, sort of like the creator of the show, uh, a guy, a stand-up comedian that had come out to L.A., grown disenfranchised with it, so went back to Minnesota. They create this little show on KTMA, the small station. It's there for a year. But then from there, it goes to Comedy Central, and then it has its run at Comedy Central like when it was becoming a new station. But it, it, it kept sort of – it stayed in Minnesota, which is super like uh, weird in the world of like um, – of uh, production production like i mean it's a television show that wasn't in new york or los angeles they stayed in minnesota they sort of kept it all within the house it was on comedy central they had a movie a major motion picture and then they were picked up for three more seasons on the sci-fi channel and through it all it, it remained this sort of like lovingly ramshackle um put together thing like this very sort of insular world but it's it's very much grew because like in the early days it was sort of like improvisational and like um much more slower paced and then like it it grew and then like but then like it grew perhaps like too big and the group came eagle clashes and joel left even though he's like sort of the the soul of the show when he was replaced by mike nelson and like all these people were always leaving the show just had to constantly sort of evolve and keep going and it always had the same sort of premise but it was still like you know, like the Joel episodes are different than the Mike episodes, even though there's just only the like a slight change to it, and like the show always had like sort of like it had like different voices, and there were all sorts of and all sorts of different kind of movies they did, and and different ways they would sort of approach these movies and how those approaches were changed, and how these movies are sort of glimpses into the world of like pop culture and like movie making, like you get old teen angst films, you get movies about like old school sort of rubber monster movies and alien movies and you get some of like the most bafflingly bizarre movies ever made like uh i didn't get to 
deliver do a chapter on the on the wild wild um world of batwoman but that movie is this incredibly bizarre film i wish i could have written about and i could talk about at length but i did get to talk about um there's two chapters for uh, perhaps the two most horrible movies they they've shown two of the worst movies i've seen um but in a way that's also fascinating and entertaining because there's also movies you learn from watching the show and from watching there's there's movies that are bad but in a way that is fascinating and funny. And this is what people think of when they think of like Mr. Thousand, they think of ironic movie watching. They think about, oh, this movie's so bad, it's good, that sort of thing, that sort of ironic appreciation. But then there are movies that are just so bad that they're bad. They're these weird, tedious slogs, like the episode featuring the movie Ca- uh, Castle of Fu Manchu, which features Christopher Lee as the titular Fu Manchu and sort of like doing like sort of Asian caricature. And it's so baffling and tedious and awful. But there's, Two movies that are uh, each get a chapter. Um, one is Models the Hands of Fate, perhaps the most iconic episode of Mr. 3000, and that is not the most iconic one. It is Hobgoblins, which is also covered. And these movies are just, and the story behind Madness Hand of Fate is so fascinating uh, in and of itself. And I mean, it, it's, the, I go into definite, into the, and that chapter, so, I, well, God, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, I want to talk about these episodes individually, mm-hmm. but as a whole, like, did you see a pattern over the course of them that, like, you tried to turn into the spine of the book or a thesis of some kind? The things, what I, what I really noticed is, um, in terms of anything overarching, it's really just about the, it was really just about sort of like the evolution of what the show did and the evolution of gotcha. the characters and like and how it, it went from being the the show the uhf show that was filling time to being the beloved cult favorite at sort of the end and it's it's a, the, the the book tracks that growth and that change and sort of the different like uh and the, the way the comedy grew and changed and the way the the interstitial scenes grew and changed because it's not like a show that had like story or emotion or what have you and like characterizations were not always uh even then in particular because like people would like change like being on the show like tom servo had a couple different voices crow t robot had a couple different voices and so there'd be changes there but they weren't really about anything other than practical logistics in your mind though um and I gotta say, like, even as someone, I, obviously, if it's not clear, like, I consider myself a reasonably big MSG3K fan, but uh, I don't know, you see how I just started calling it MSG3K that time, <laughs> but I, I don't know that um, because it's such a, a massive thing to try to look at as a whole, like, I don't know that I have a favorite era of the show, I don't, um, you know, even between Mike and Joel, I don't know that I have a, a super strong preference, I really love both of them, so as someone who's like kind of studied it now, and I'm sure this won't be controversial at all, um, do you think as it evolved, it got better or worse, or was it just a different thing? I feel it certainly got better from the very early days until when it got sort of like major sort of production. Cause like in the KTMA days when they were doing it like for cheap, like uh, in the book, I covered the episode from that the episode I covered from the, that season zero is when they showed Gamera and that particular episode it's just Joel in the theater by himself because um, J. Elvis Weinstein, Josh Weinstein, and uh, Trace Ballou, um, who, who voiced Crow, just couldn't show up when they filmed that episode. Uh, so he's just there in the theater by himself. Uh, and so it's like weird, slow. It's very strange to watch. And 
but and they like I said they would do sort of this much more improvisational, and when they can't got to the major network, when they got to the comedy channel, which became Comedy Central, that started to change, which is actually part of the reason why Jay Elvis left and was replaced by Kevin Murphy at, as Tom Servo because he prefers sort of the improvisational nature, and this was becoming a more sort of professional thing. And I feel I do feel like the show. Sort of, I mean, it definitely got better in that sense. And then you could, some people might consider it a plateau. I personally like the Mike years slightly better, but that's about sort of personal uh, preference to like the different hosts. Because like when Joel was replaced by Mike, and this was like sort of the early days of the internet, it became a heated debate in the like sort of internet communities that uh, built around because shocking a show like mr Anthony 2000 had a a, a a fan base that had a lot of sort of uh internet uh sort of presence in the early days of the internet that was yeah, and, and this is not this is what year we're talking about here um let's see mike took over um in some time in the mid 90s i think maybe his first episode it may have been 95 i can but it was it was mid '90s because it was before <clears throat> it was before the movie. It's it probably '94 actually, because he had a couple years on uh, the Comedy Central before they had the movie, and he was on the movie. And the movie came between season seven and season eight, and season eight was the first season on Sci Fi Channel, and that season started in '97. So this is a, a classic internet kerfluffle twenty years ago. What did that it, look like twenty years ago? How is that different than it would be today? Uh, well, I believe that was still in the days of like Usenet, which is also very sort of prominent in the world of like the the Simpsons in the early days, where like it wasn't like the, the people the the average Joe could not necessarily get on the internet. It was for like people who were really computer savvy, and like there wasn't really sort of websites. So they go to these Usenet groups, which are basically like message boards, and that's like all they could really there all there really was on the internet was like these this little was like so, yeah the all before the web yeah it was like all ms three three k or whatever right and this was something you know the way you type in http and that's a website um this is just something different it wasn't the web it predated it's called usenet i think we've talked i'm sure there it's come up on the show before uh, but so like and then like it was like you know joel uh, was like and people a lot of times in the world in general and in pop culture as well, they don't like change. People dislike bias change and they don't like things that they love feeling like attacked or what have you. And like, even if it's not really changing anything, it's like, I mean, like for a example that is semi <clears throat> uh, prominent will probably remain in sort of some degree of prominence from like currently is like people losing their minds about the notion of there being like a Ghostbusters reboot with like all women. If people like can't handle that sort of thing. Well, people- you know, busting ghosts is a man's job, you know? I think that, uh, I, I, it's hard to say if women could be up to it. I hope it's clear I'm kidding. But it's like, you know, that's like, uh, the way it sort of, it, it goes. Um, although, also, just to quickly go back, I mean, the Statue of Liberty is a woman and helped them bust Ghost in, in uh, Ghostbusters 2. So Janine was a very important part of the she team, was vital. you know? She, so was, she was in there to answer phones. I she's mean, a woman Ghostbuster. I don't see we need to, I don't think we need to go further than that. Again, I just want to be clear. I am, yeah, anyway. Uh, but, so, like, Mike replaced Joel and people loved Joel. And so Mike was different. And that was basically, for a lot of people, reason enough for, um, you know, to despise a Mike and to hate Mike and to be against Mike because Mike represented change. Mike represented something different. And sure, probably the fact that Joel was like the creator of MS2 3K probably played a part of that as well because 
it was like his baby and now he was not it was like it had been given to a a new father um perhaps somewhat reluctantly uh and then mike had a different style so i mean there was there was a clear difference there was mike uh, had become head writer of the show so he already, he already had a voice in the show when joel was still on the show but mike episodes tended to have a little bit more of a a bite to them in terms of the comedy tend to be um a little bit more mean-spirited at times and he also had a different sort of uh, interaction with the bots like the bots often viewed joel as a father figure which i found to be kind of weird at times because they suddenly start acting very childish so sometimes to be very adult and very mature and then they start acting very sort of really childish shows like sort of like they're like baby talking it's like when an, like an adult woman does like sort of like baby talk and becomes it's very creepy to uh many but uh, erotic to a select few it always sort of weirded me out when like the bots would start acting like you know like little kids but and but with mike it was much more like they would razz mike and they treated like mike was an equal and they made fun of mike and mike was a source of like um humor and like and what have you, and also um, Mike had a different sort of one. His different sort of personality. Joel did a very sort of sleepy, laid back, sort of lackadaisical thing. Like Joel had a very sort of almost like um, fatalistic uh, sense about himself being on the side of love, whereas Mike was much more like angry and irksome and trying to always escape. So there was a definitive difference between them. But uh, so there was like heated debate on the internet. It became commonplace in the world of the internets that like any place where message transfers three thousand was being discussed, there would be no arguing Joel versus Mike rules because it would be a it was a war no one could win. It would just go on sort of forever and get very heated and very vile, uh, because it's the internet and that's even in the earliest internet, uh that's what it it, it it was. And so like it was a but so I like the Mike episodes better a bit. Um, it, I just think I just found Mike sort of like a funnier presence, and maybe it's also some of the episodes he got to do, like, and there's also of course the fact that like Mike t- had three the three seasons on the Sci-Fi Channel with the different Mads when uh, Doctor Forrester and TV's Frank were replaced. Although I did like Doctor Forrester, TV's Frank more than I like Pearl and Bobo and Brain Guy, so that's more a, a point in earlier episodes' favor. Uh, but so I feel like there was like, like a sort of um, consistent sort of improvement with a maybe slight sort of like plateauishness, but I just thought Mike was a bit better. And I feel like sci-fi channel episodes are just as good as sort of like a Comedy Central channel episodes. Like the, the change of networks didn't hurt the show at all. Uh, like it, it, became, it was still the same show. Uh, nothing was really sort of changed about it. Uh, it was just, you know, in a different place. And then eventually started getting put on like in weird hours. Like it could be on late at night or like on early like mornings on the weekend. And then like in the end of the run, it was like just on like in like the mornings and like uh week on the weekend days like where like some people would be watching like cartoons like others would be like tuning in for like Mr. Century 3000. In your mind, how much do uh the those interim segments, those non-movie segments matter? Cuz I think to a lot of people there may be, you know, like the musical guest on Saturday night live or um you know, maybe the hosting segments on Key and Peel and it's just a distinctly less important part of the show. Do you view it that way? Uh, I, I, I feel just as vital to the comedy and it's, and oftentimes it's, it's just vital to the movie sort of stuff. Like they would do bits in the theater and the, or not in the theater, they do bits in sort of the host segments that were about criticizing the movies and doing the same sort of thing, but they were able to do visual stuff and, and into any sense of sort of like, 
like characterization, like which didn't really matter, which matters sometimes in the theater because like, you know, like Tom would sort of like do this sort of thing or Crow did this sort of thing would sort of be built out. And it was just as much sort of doing comedy bits there. Like, I mean, in the early days when they do the invention exchanges, so Joel, who it was a, like a prop comic, he could do his sort of prop comedy uh, by doing sort of invention exchange things, which was like uh, the, the Mads and Joel would sort of like had these sort of um, humorous adventures or things that they were extensively exchanging as a means of greeting each other. So the host segments, maybe it's not, I mean, that's not what people think about when they think of the show in the vague sense, probably. And like what people remember, like favorite lines or what have your favorite moments, probably not necessarily in the theater, but the theater, I, mean, I keep saying theater, which is the exact opposite of what I mean. Uh, Cause I'm talking about the host segments in the sort of the main room of the Saturday Night Love. Um, they're just as vital to the comedy they're just as like funny often like they would do really funny music things like a lot of funny songs were in there the patrick Swayze christmas song um tom's creepy girl song the werewolf werewolf song which are just like uh, a handful of sort of things like so i feel like it's just as important um and just as matters in terms of like their critical discussion of the movies and also it's when they interacted with fans like they would read letters from fans people would send letters to their their p.o box for their fan club and they would like read these letters and like it was a place of like direct interaction with their fandom, like with the fandom, which is something that is like was fairly unique in television. Like, you know, like people could send the letters to them and get their letters read on television, which is not something you could do with, you know, like uh, a Seinfeld or even like late night talk shows necessarily wouldn't, wouldn't do that. So I feel like host segments. Um, equally important to sort of what in the theater. How did you pick these episodes? Because looking at the list, um, you know, kind of the ones I ex- I saw a lot of the names I expected to see there, like you said, Monos, Hobgoblins, and I, I kind of noticed that um, those ep- pod people, those episodes uh, are often important plot-wise, like the ones where Joel, uh, Joel leaves or where Mike shows up or where there's a, a transition in the framing segments. And I, do you think those are the episodes that we remember because those are the important milestone episodes or are they really the funniest episodes? Uh, it can be because, well, I definitely think, and the ones I put in there, like when, when there were significant transitions, I tried to put those ones in the book to try and include those. is a mixture of uh, critical episodes from the show and trying to cover the sort of vast... Um, spectrum of kind of movies they showed because like the episode where Joel leaves is uh, Mitchell Mitchell is probably as a movie it's one of actually the more like upscale movies they showed it's not like a really bizarre cheap science fiction film it's got like Joe Don Baker in it wasn't he uh, upset that it was on that show um, possibly that's sort of like um, uh, sort of a one of those sort of like anecdotal stories like yeah yeah yeah. I I don't have a citation for that because, I mean, I read this sort of anecdotal stuff, like, and some say, like, it's like, you know, he kept getting bothered about it. So he jokingly said he was going to, like, sock somebody in the mouth or what have you. But it's like, it, in sort of context, it was a joke or what have you and so on. But, like, it's so it's not, um, like, as a movie, not one of the most famous sort of movies. Like, it's not one of the worst movies. It's not like people are like, oh, Mitchell, it's so bad. And, like, it's a fine episode in terms of, like, the jokes in the theater and what have you. But I included it in the book, and it's like, a prominent episode because joel leaves it's the last joel episode so it's like if you know it's a it's one of the most significant moments in the show i included the the series finale which is not technically the last episode that aired but it was made as a series finale uh which was for the movie diabolique which again it's like it's a movie it's not like got a lot of famous moments a lot of famous sort of like jokes or famous bits in it but it's the it's the final episode so obviously it had to be included 
and like so like when people if if danger if danger diabolique uh had been shown in like the middle of season six i doubt it would be an episode people brought up but it's like what's the last episode of the show oh it's the one where they showed uh, danger diabolique that's why it's remembered that's why mitchell's remembered as opposed to something like Mouse Hand of Fate, which is the last episode of season four, but it's beyond it's that's not like a big thing necessarily. It's just such an abysmal movie, such a bizarre movie that it, it was going to be remembered. So, and it's so bizarre that and so iconic, it had to be included in the book. But so yeah, I, I, some of the episodes are remembered simply because they're sort of milestone episodes. Otherwise, I don't necessarily think they would be so prominent. You know, if it's not clear yet. Um, and it shouldn't be this way, but Mystery Science Theater are kind of a daunting thing because there's 200 episodes, each one's the length of a movie, like I keep saying. Uh, someone who has never seen the show but for some reason is still listening to us talk right now, what episode would you recommend they start with? Like, what's a, what's a great episode that really shows off what Mystery Science Theater can do? That's, that's a, uh, a good way. But I am somebody who, like, uh, will listen to sort of, like, podcasts and, like, watch things about things I have never seen or anything like that because I just find sort of pop culture interesting. So I hope there's people out there who are listening to this that have never seen it uh, before because that's, you know, sort of uh, there's a lot of interesting things in the show and it's so notable. But if they want to reach out and watch the show, and part of the good thing is that the folks behind Miss Sensory 3000 would actively encourage people during the show's run to tape episodes and then, in their words, circulate the tapes, which is say sort of send them to people so they could watch them. And so a lot of people taped a lot of episodes onto VHS, and then those VHSs have ended up on the YouTubes. So, and in, so in combination with episodes being on Hulu and Netflix and what have you, you can find most episodes on the YouTubes uh, dubbed from somebody's VHS tape. If you want to, you know, uh, put up with that, which is, you know, if you love MS3K, it's something you do. But if you don't necessarily love it, it's maybe not the uh, best sort of uh, way to get into it because you're you're dealing with, you know, um, sort of uh, very sort of vintage, almost almost in some way artisanal sort of uh, television watching. But I'm going to give a couple episodes. I want to give a Joel episode and I want to give a Mike episode. So I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Because, I mean, they're different sort of things. And they'll probably end up being also a Comedy Central episode and a sci-fi episode, a channel episode as well, because it's like, just to do one episode. And the good thing is that the show explains its premise in its theme song, and there's not like a lot of story to follow, although there was sort of an overarching story in season eight or the first season of the sci-fi channel about them being trapped, lost in time and space. Uh, But in terms of a Joel episode to put out there, you mentioned Pod People, and I would probably go with Pod People because it's a bizarre movie. It's a hilarious episode with a lot of great jokes. It's and it just so it's like it's really funny. It's easy to follow. It doesn't. It's it's um it's people will be able to sort of understand what's going on and like and it's not anything sort of weird. But like that's like a that's a really good one. I would say Pod People would be the Joel episode I would recommend to people to watch. And then for a Mike episode, oh, I kind of want to suggest Hobgoblins, but I feel like that may be, uh, although people who are interested in, in bad movies would probably really enjoy that, but it may be just too bizarre and too weird to start off with. Um, but in, in that case, I would then say Werewolf 
which is one of my favorite episodes. It's not as sort of notable, but it's, again, a really sort of funny episode and more probably approachable because if somebody's not necessarily watching Mr. Science Theater 3000, they're probably not an avid sort of bad movie aficionado. So like jumping right in with uh, Hobgoblins would be uh, perhaps a bit... Uh, too much. You you want to sort of uh, you know dip your toe in the water first, and then you go to uh, go to Hobgoblins once you've sort of gotten a sense of uh, of the world, of the show. And then I would definitely recommend watching Hobgoblins because that movie is just so fascinatingly bad, and so it's a great episode too. It was a lot of really funny jokes because they got a lot of fire to work with. But uh, so that's what I would say. I'd say you watch your pod people, you watch your werewolf, and if you don't want to watch the show after that, this is not a show for you. Because it's two great episodes, and if you know if those episodes hold no truck for you, there's nothing for you here, and you should probably move along to other sort of pop cultural pastures. My personal favorite element of Mystery Science Theater was always the shorts, and maybe that's my attention span, or maybe it's just because the shorts are more ridiculous, you know, because they're like these ephemeral films about uh, like bread sales. I mean, they're, they're, I think they're the most, you know, they're not even trying to tell a story; they're trying to sell you something. So they're like they're or teach you something, which is even worse. Uh, so they're they're just inherently so ridiculous. Of the shorts, what are your what? Where would you go for Mystery Science Theater three thousand shorts? Well, it's in the early days, actually, the shorts were telling stories because they would do little sort of serials. And like, so it'd be like they'd show like little uh, like serial short films that were telling an overarching story. Like there's a Undersea Kingdom or Raider Men on the Moon. But then they start, stopped doing those. They started doing talking about sort of educational shorts, shorts selling things. Um, and for those... There's a lot of good ones. My favorite sort of lesson one is probably cheating, which is it's fairly by the book. Is this a short about a kid who cheats? Uh, but it's got a lot of really funny jokes in it. It's very sort of simple. Uh, it's not weird at all. So I'd really enjoy that one. But then after that, there's two super bizarre ones that are also fantastic. Um, one of them is Spring Fever, which if anybody has seen that Simpsons episode where they have the little short film about a world without zinc, it's basically like that, but a world without springs. I think that is not The Simpsons. I think you're thinking of the Kentucky Fried movie. No, I, I, I'm telling you with 100% certainty. No, isn't that a skin the Kentucky Fried movie? The they may, do a th- thing they, without zinc? They may do something similar, but it is 100% a Simpsons episode. You'll have to trust me on this. I, I believe you. You sound very certain. But I think it's also in the Kentucky Fried movie. It, it may be, but I one, I haven't seen Kentucky Fried movie, and this thing is uh, drilled in my brain. He's like, he he tries, it's a world without zinc. It's, he sounds like this squeaky voice t- teen. He says, come back, zinc, come back. And, and there's no zinc in the world. I, I think Lisa's being shown it. Uh, that maybe, maybe not. Now, who was being shown that particular film? I feel like it may be in the episode where Lisa complains that they just keep showing yeah, educational no. films over and over and over. And then uh, they show maybe it's also when they show the one where they where they talk about going to the moon with Democratic hopeful Adelaide Stevenson. And when they look and Miss Hoover's car is gone. I think it's the one with um, where Bart is writing the letters to and to and Bart the lover. Yeah, when he's writing the letters under Gordy Howe's name, maybe, or well, something no, like Gordy, that. It's Gordy Howe's picture. The name is Woodrow from Woodrow Wilson. All right, all right, all right. Back to Mystery Science Theater. Yes. So, uh, oh, so what is the... Um, the other short? Yeah. Mr. B. Natural. Oh, that one's so good. That one's it so good. It is so weird. It's like, it's, it's ostensibly trying to sell... It's from Con Instruments. 
trying to sell instruments to children, but it is super weird and features uh, this character, Mr. Be Natural, which is basically sort of, it's, it's Peter Panning it because it's a woman pretending to be a man, sort of like, and it's super weird, super bizarre. Mr. Be Natural became sort of a character within the Mr. Century 3000 world. Uh, he slash she showed up during uh, a Turkey Day sort of series of wraparounds because they used to do uh, Thanksgiving Day marathons on Mr. Century 3000 on Comedy Central. And so there'd be little sort of wraparounds they would do in between episodes. And one time there was a party and Mr. B. Natural was there and Jack Perkins, as played by Mike Nelson before he became Mike Nelson on the show, uh, hits on Mr. B. Natural, who was played by his wife, uh, Bridget Nelson or Bridget Nelson, I don't remember. Uh, and so he hits on her and tries to make out with her slash him because he's Mr. B. Natural, but he's being played by a woman. That short is super weird. It's fairly long because some of the shorts are, are, are short, like Spring Fever is only like five minutes long, but like the Mr. B. Natural one is sort of longer because sometimes the movies would just be too short, even for like, you know, like the length of like uh, an episode of Mr. Century 3000, which is without commercials. I like the movies are like an hour and a half long with the wraparounds and the host segments thrown in, but some of the movies will be too short. They'd have to put, and they'd have to, or they have to cut a lot of stuff out for like broadcast purposes. And so they throw a short on there. Some of them are fairly long. Some episodes even had multiple shorts on them. Uh, but Mr. Be Natural, great short. That's also available on the YouTubes. I would definitely recommend checking that one out. Yeah, it's kind of nice, and I never thought this would happen because the show is so sprawling, uh, how accessible it is and how easy it is to just kind of watch a bunch of Mystery Science Theater in a variety of ways uh, now, you know, between the DVD sets and YouTube and Hulu. um, It's really out there, and it's really accessible. And, uh, you know, in a way, I feel like it's coming back. Do you see shows... I feel like Mystery Science Theater's impact was great, even though the show um, was maybe a little ahead of its time, maybe a little too early, uh, you know, um, in the way it was ahead of the internet in some ways. Do you, do you see an impact uh, le- left by Mystery Science Theater on other pop culture? Uh, I feel like I always want to, like, anytime anything involves people, like, cracking wise over anything, I want to credit the Mystery Science 3000. It's because, like, I feel like they, I mean, but... I feel like that's it's what really put that into conscience. So, what would be an example of that? Uh, there's like, well, there's a lot of stuff that usually ends up like being done on like the internet or like on like Jake Fogelness old podcast that uh, the Fogelness Files. Where, like, they He's show, also been on this podcast where they would show clips. And I was a big fan of the Fogelness Files, which has been the highest for a while. We'll Me be too, back someday. Too. I hope so because again, well, I liked it earlier uh, because it was a lot more pop culture focused, and then it became a lot more weird videos on the internet focused, which I was less interested in. But I feel like any time, or like there was like this, there's this thing called like Cartoon Lagoon, which was like people riffing over like movie sort of um or or like little sort of like cartoons and like um, also I mean like in a way Mistress Three Thousand was just an a sideways evolution of the old horror host trope, which is another thing that I've, I'm, I'm a big sort of like, I have sort of big interest in folks like a, a Goulardi, a an Elvira or what have you. But like, because they would like show movies, they'd host the movies and they sort of like do jokes in between, like during commercial breaks for the movies, but they did not necessarily talk over the movies. But so it was like, but they sort of kept that alive and it sort of like it was an evolution of that. So like, I feel like it had in a sense of like people commenting on like pop culture and joking about pop culture. Or I mean like maybe in a way all those panel shows on VH1 is sort of in a sense or like Beavis and Butthead, which is sort of from a oh, similar Oh yeah, of course Beavis and Butthead. A similar time period doing a similar thing, but slightly different and I mean 
This was in 2000 that invent the sort of the concept of people watching something. What did? What, what is the precedent for Mystery Science Theater 3000? Well, I feel like the precedent is probably just the concept of people sitting around and just cracking wise and making fun of things. Like I don't, I don't think Mystery Science 3000 was like inventing the wheel in a sense. Like I mean, I'm sure like before that, not it had never been codified. It had not necessarily been turned into sort of popular cultural phenomena. But I'm sure people, I mean, like the show came out, their television existed for many years before that. Movies existed for many years before that. Um, uh, ironic appreciation existed for many years sort of before then. I can only assume that people would. The only the internet made it really count, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. Uh, people, I'm sure it was, I mean, like, people would sort of, including people probably like Joel and what have you, would see something and like they'd, you know, be sitting with a buddy of theirs and like you see something, you crack a joke, it's the George Costanza in the movie Third Young Out, that's gotta hurt sort of a thing and everybody gets a laugh and like, you know, and like people still do that sort of thing and now it just feels like it's like borrowed from, even people who haven't seen Mystery Science 3000, Mystery Science Theater 3000, when you try to say that too fast, it just becomes a tongue twister. MST3K, as it's known to people who uh, don't want to waste people's time. Uh, even people who haven't seen the show will still watch TV and crack jokes or go to a movie and crack jokes to their friends. Like It just it took a concept of sort of um, human interaction based around pop culture people are um, experiencing and codified it and did it in the best way possible because it happened to be people are funny as opposed to people who aren't funny or don't have like original sort of things to say. Like I was listening recently to Bill Corbett from Rift Tracks, who was also the second voice of Crow T Robot and played Brain Guy slash Observer in later episodes. And he was talking about sort of like times when they have um, sort of auditioned writers for writing, like contributing writers for Rift Tracks. Um, and like people will just sort of like, trot out like saying things like about people being dumb like oh why do you go in that room oh oh, why do you do that that's so stupid like and like so people but people still sort of say that sort of thing and do that sort of thing it's not as clever not as original not as smart as like because i mean like that just goes for anything like there's garage bands who are making lousy music and then there are you know people who are making lousy comments on television while they sit around with their buddies uh, and then some people are doing it very well. And some of these people are doing it very well who don't have um, prominent places in pop culture. It's just that Mr. S3000 was in the middle of a Venn diagram of people who are very good at um, making jokes over a movie and using a movie as a springboard for a lot of humor and also having sort of the chance to become like, you know, a pop cultural uh, uh, figure. Like they were able to carve out that niche in the world. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, and then you know, people watched that and were you know intrigued by it and said, "Oh, and it's also very aspirational." It says that anybody again feels like they can do this. Like a lot of people don't feel like they could write a movie or write for a TV show or write music, uh, but everybody or not everybody, a lot of people feel like they could you know make funny jokes, make funny observations about. Um, uh, you know, movies or television or what have you, and some of them can and some of them cannot, but it's very sort of aspirational in a sense. It's very um, easy to sort of interface with and sort of um, recognize uh, that in. And also people, like, again, pop culture, it's like 
people have, like you know pop culture is being reflected to people people are getting references and people are getting very obscure references that they appreciate somebody making which is another thing that Mr. 2000 was very sort of good at and so that's why I feel like it's really sort of uh, codified sort of commentation on pop culture within the world of pop culture and to the point where like anytime something uh, you know lo-fi or otherwise is doing a similar thing it will be called a Mr. Sender to the year 2000 um, uh, people are being generous saying it was inspired by MST3K being not generous saying it's an MST3K ripoff but these things sort of exist none of them have really come to any major prominence or not a lot of them have come to major sort of prominence that did not involve people from Mr. Sender to 2000 itself with Riff tracks being like the really successful thing, and even between Riff tracks and MST3K, like um, Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett did this thing called the Film Crew, which was sort of like a middle point between the, those two worlds, and it did not really find success. And like Joel and a bunch of people, basically everybody else who ever was on camera as like a major prominent figure on MST3K did a thing called Cinematic Titanic, which has since been sort of disbanded, and. Uh, so like they really are the people who have sort of kept it all alive even though there's so many other people that I feel like um, aspire to it and uh, try to do it because eventually something's going to have to you know replace this sort of thing like these guys, the guys doing riff tracks can't do riff tracks forever something and it's sort of like interesting to me because there's always going to be obviously a market for this there's because it, it's you know it has been there since the beginning. Uh, and it's, and so I mean somebody's and I just don't know who it's going to be because there's not there's not like a clear number two it's not like there's riff tracks and then there's this there's no like this maybe there is but if there was I feel like I would have heard about it because it's right on my alley right on my wheelhouse and because I just wrote a book that involved doing a lot of research in this sort of world so I'm very intrigued what's going to happen like a vacuum is going to open when the riff track guys aren't doing riff tracks anymore. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens when that does happen. Is there anyone you see as like a potential heir to that throne? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of like around sort of like theaters in these United States of America at like, for example, like at the various Alamo Draft House theaters. A lot of them have sort of movie interruption nights where they have their own sort of like movie teams where people like talk mm-hmm. during a movie and what have you. And, I and, saw one of those um, at the Alamo Draft House. I saw Master Pancake. Yes, I they're like they're the big ones. It was great. And I've actually personally been in a talk. I've talked with a couple of different um, uh, Alamo Draft House uh, theaters about doing a sort of movie interruption thing myself personally because it's the sort of thing that I enjoy. And so, like, uh, as as well, but like, so that's like, but that's sort of like on a local sort of level. And that's like in a, a personal interaction level, and it's it's tricky because like, well, I say that, and then maybe it's not so tricky because like, if you get something that's public domain, there's not really an issue of um uh sort of like financial issue. It's just really an issue of like creating and and Rift Tracks has these things on their website called iRiffs, where people can submit their own riffs for movies. They can they can they can include a video if they have sort of the rights to something. They find something public domain, or they can just submit an audio track. Because that's what Rift Tracks does a lot of, is they do audio tracks to pair with major movies they can never get the rights for. Like they are very popular when like ones for like the Twilight movies. Uh, so there's like and uh, so I mean maybe somebody will emerge from that. But like there's I don't know beyond like sort of the master pancakes of the world and i know like comedian doug benson does a lot of sort of movie interruption things in the la area 
Uh, and he's sort of like a very sort of guy known in the sort of the, the movie realm because he also does, you know, Doug Love movies. It's just this big podcast. And maybe somehow in some way he'll step into the vacuum. I have no idea. But like somebody will do it. And they're out there right now honing their skills. They're just sort of waiting for the shoe to drop, which could be many years because it's not like there's it takes a lot of like energy and effort um, in some sort of physical. It's not like they're not like athletes who like you reach a physical point where you just can't do it any longer. Like these guys, Mike and Kevin and Bill, can do this for as long as they want to, and you know it'll work. But eventually, something will emerge, and you know. It'll be intriguing and hopefully it'll be good. I imagine it will be if it is able to sort of get the general consensus that uh, we have the facts and we're voting yes on this particular uh, whatever this thing may be, this mystery thing. So if you're a person out there, you know, maybe start working now, start holding your craft and start laying in wait for the right moment to strike. And then you can be the next uh, riff tracks or what have you. Well, Chris... Uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. I, I've, like I keep saying, I love this show, but I never really had thought about it in this way. One more time, what is the name of that book? It is The Comic Galaxy of Mr. Treasure 2000, colon, 12 classic episodes, and the movies they lampoon. And it's available, you know, where people get books, which basically, I guess, means Amazon today. Uh, yeah, it's available. We can pre-order right now on Amazon or um, you can get it directly through the publisher. The publisher is McFarland Publishers. You can get a direct link to that vis-a-vis my Twitter page, which uh, my Twitter handle is at ChrisXMorgan. If so, if you don't like Amazon, which some people do not, you can buy it directly from the publisher for the same price. You can pre-order there as well. Yes. Excellent. Chris, thanks so much for talking tonight. Oh, uh, thanks for uh, having me and letting me uh, talk uh, at length. Sometimes in long, uninterrupted jags about Mystery 3000 and other things. My pleasure. Uh, this was great, Chris. So I'll, I'll send you an email. It'll be like a week and a half, and it'll be up, and I'll let you know when that is. All right, sounds good. Thanks so much. Yep, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I will be back in two weeks. Until then, you got anything to say, you can say it to me on Twitter, where I am at Jeff Rubin Show. You can reach me on Tumblr, jeffrubinjeffrubin.com. I got a Facebook fan page, and you can go to jeffrubinjeffrubinshow.com, where my email address is, uh, where my email address is. I'm sure that was not correct. Uh, and you can hear every episode of the show uh, for free. New episode, two weeks from now. Uh... Check out the videos I'm making uh, at BuzzFeed. I haven't plugged those in a while. BuzzFeed.com slash Jeff Rubin. You can see all the cool stuff I'm doing when I'm not making podcasts. And uh, that's it. See you in two weeks. Bye for now.